Have you taken the time to look deep within yourself, to decide how you view things and why you view them? Have you taken a journey to explore the world as it is in your eyes and how it is through the eyes of others? Today we're taking a journey through the eyes of Rajan Shankara. Raj is a former monk of 12 years and his story is absolutely amazing. His views, science, spirituality, religion, views on just being alive and how we see things are really thought-provoking and very interesting. Podcasts are a great way to experience someone's words and how those words have so much power and provide an exploration for us in thought. We jump into the podcast in the beginning where I'm talking to Raj about his highly unusual experience of getting into a monastery and what that was like. So ladies and gentlemen, check out Raj Shankara. like about their story. I love their stories that people have. And yours sounds like a, a fantastically interesting story to me. <laughs> it, it's unusual, I suppose. What do you, what do you think is the most unusual aspect of it? I mean, you were a monk for a while, right? 12 years. What got you into that? Well, I, you know, I got to a point where all I think I think all young people get to where they start asking themselves what what's the point of uh, their existence what what are they supposed to do uh, that that means anything or or if anything does have meaning mm-hmm. and I started to ask those questions around 18 or 19 years old as a, as a business owner, I owned an asphalt company mm-hmm. and shortly after, um, doing that and starting to make a lot of money as a 19 year old, you know, it, it didn't take long for me to just give everything up and, and move to the jungle. Um, one of my catalysts was a book that I read called the autobiography of a Yogi. You may know of it. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of a popular book. And most people read that book and then they, they close it and uh, move on to the next one. But for me, uh, I closed the book and, and decided to move to the jungle and master meditation. Wow. And what was that experience like? when you decided to like actually make that decision what was like that first day like when you said i'm doing this we're gonna go there man well i'm (laughs) i don't know i've never actually thought about it yeah i'm pretty good at detaching from things uh because of my upbringing i was never close to family Mm -hmm. um so you know even now as a uh 
33-year-old. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to uh, reconnect with family and build all those relationships again and, and be an uncle and things like that. But I, I was never good at that. And, and no one in my family was. We were always separated. So for me to say, hey, I'm giving away my business and I'm going with the jungle was actually kind of easy. And I had support and my dad actually bought my plane ticket if I went to New Orleans with him to clean up after Hurricane Katrina. Mm -hmm. So um, I said, okay. And we went to New Orleans and stayed in the lower ninth ward uh, mm -hmm. for about a week and worked with a nonprofit to uh, help, help out after that whole yeah. natural disaster. And, uh, giving my business away was easy. And, and my sister, uh, said that she would actually go with me for one month to train me in how to survive in the, the wild of Hawaii, uh, because she had lived there before in the mm -hmm. wild and both of my sisters did their own soul searching and then, uh, came back to the, to the mainland U S. So I, uh, I went out there with her and went and had her support. And so it made it a lot easier, but it was, a, it was a simple decision. It was something I needed to do. And, and my soul was sort of, um, it was kind of like a revolution uh, inside me. And my soul was kind of splitting away from the tyranny of my own ego, I guess. Wow. Well, take me through like once you got there, what was the adjustment? I mean, once you got to the jungles and the reality set in of where you were, what was that adjustment like? It was like an untethering, uh, you know, from being attached to an identity to being free and, and being able to just explore without any um, expectation. So it was extremely liberating just to make the move and open up, you know, the first morning, open up the tent to the, to the ocean. You know, the first night we got off the plane and then just took a taxi to some uh, remote beach and it was rocky and we just set up a tent and, um, the next day, I remember hearing the, the roosters and um, you basically on Kauai, on the island of Kauai, you can hear one rooster um, and then a successive kind of lineage of rooster calls down the, the island. Like, it's very interesting. So if you're up high, you could hear roosters call from all around their own territories. And I started to listen to that and I was near the ocean for the first time in my life. And I said to myself, you know, I, I think I just uh, made it home. I think I'm going to spend the rest of my life here. And, and I did think that I was going to be a monk forever. Um, but it, it turns out uh, I had something else to do. So what was the process of be, becoming a monk? Like, I mean, you're there, you're, you're on the beach, you're experiencing it. How did you get to that point to where becoming a monk? Okay. I, um, I was not going to be in the monastery 
I did not really know too much about it. A friend told me, you know, they had Googled uh, monks on Kauai and said, hey, if you're going to be there, you might want to check this monastery out. I put that in the back of my mind. We got to the island. We started to just stay in, in one place for three days and then we would move on. And then she just basically tried to show me the perimeter of the island and we didn't go inwards, inland. Um, and we had just been alone and it was just meditation, um, some chanting and philosophical discussion showing me how to uh, get coconuts and, and wild bananas. And uh, I think we had like a bag of trail mix and a jar of peanut butter. And then for the entire month, right. that was what we had. And when she was leaving, uh, you know, she started to talk more about it. And, and I said, well, you know, if we can get to the monastery, then uh, I guess I can go and, and see what it's all about. But we were on the other side of the island. So uh, it turned out that during her last week, she ended up meeting a friend uh, and said that her friend said that uh, we could spend our last week at her place. So when I found out uh, and I said, well, where does she live? And she said she lives down the street from the monastery. So that was kind of, there was a lot of synchronicity up to this point. I went for a tour and after the tour, I asked uh, to speak with one of the monks and he basically said, you know, what do you want? And I said, I'd like training. And he said, uh, no, you know, you have to leave and yeah. basically uh, don't come back. So I said, okay, <laughs> that yeah, didn't like, work out. Right. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So we went back, uh, to my sister's friend's house and, and my sister was uh, almost gone at that point, maybe a few days left. And I, I called my mom. Uh, I think, you know, throughout that whole month, I had only talked to her once or twice. And I said, so this is it. Uh, Rose is going to leave and come back to the mainland. I'm going to go back to the jungle. I already have a spot picked out and, you know, I'll be out here forever and, and goodbye. <laughs> wow. Wow, man. <laughs> so my mom said, uh, go back. You know, they're just testing you and you need to go back every day. And she said that I needed to show them that their mission was going to be my mission and that I wasn't just there for myself. So I said, okay, I started to go back every day in the morning. The monastery is open from nine to noon every day for the public. And they have a temple in the front. And I went back every day and I meditated in the temple and uh, I got to borrow uh, my sister's friend's bike. And after a few days, um, someone actually came out and said, one of the older monks would like to speak with you. Mm -hmm. So it, I actually had tea with one of the senior monks there, um, basically the second in command. And I asked all these questions and he asked questions and, and he had this long flowing white beard and, and, and you know, he would just kind of philosophize and, and wonder what, what my path was. And he said, well, why don't you come back every day and we'll have tea together at the same time. 
-hmm. And we did. I uh, updated my mom and, and she said, okay, now what you have to do is uh, start asking about work. And you need, to, you need to make sure that you're not there just to be lazy, but you're actually going to put in work. And I said, okay, it's worked so far. Uh, I, so I went back to the next meeting and we had tea. And before I left on that time, uh, he said, you know, do you have any last questions? And I said, how can I stay longer? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, after, after we have tea and everything is great, but I don't want to go, go leave afterwards. I'd like to stay and possibly do some work. And he had this big laugh and he spun around in his chair and he, and he stroked his, his beard. And he said, you can go out to the forest and pick up sticks on one side and put them on the other. And he said, when you make a pile, take, start taking those sticks and carry them over to the other side and make another pile. Hmm. And I said, okay, <laughs> you know, I got <laughs> to stay there longer. So I did. And I'd stay there for, for about an hour and someone would, would come out and, and chew me away. And uh, I did that for several days. We would have tea and then I'd go back and pick up my sticks. And after a few days, someone came out and said they'd like to take my picture and show it to the guru of the monastery. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay. And uh, the next day I was picking up my sticks and, and they came out and said, you were approved to stay for a six month training program. And that um, turned into a 12 year uh, career, essentially. Wow. What is the kind of the daily life of like training uh, and being a monk? What's, I know this is probably quite a bit, but what was kind of your typical day when you were there? Right. This is a special kind of monastery. I don't think any other monastery in the world is as regimented and disciplined as, as this one. So Kauai Zindu Monastery is designed for self-mastery and we were called soldiers of the within. So we were, we were kind of turned into machines that could uh, read, write, uh, work, clean and cook and worship, meditate, all these things were on the outside kind of um, polished so that the mm-hmm. inside of us uh, was clear and free and that we could, we could meditate uh, fairly easily using the uh, monk designed uh, system of shum, which is an actual language designed just for meditation for the monks. We had roll call at 5.30 every day. And so everyone would gather uh, in the temple uh, in front of one of the deities Mm-hmm. And there, there was the only three main deities that we used for worship and kind of communed with on a daily basis. And we were all in rank. So it was a hierarchy, it was a system of hierarchy. And if you were late, there was consequences. You had to, you know, not go to your specific department, but you had to do hard labor mm-hmm. uh, as a, an incentive to not, you know, miss uh, the 530 roll call. And then for 30 minutes, we would worship in the temple. For one hour after that, we would meditate. Then we had a break for an hour. And then uh, at 8 o'clock, everyone started their uh, morning meetings in the departments. There was five departments of the Mm. monastery. 
And then, so it depends on what, what department you were in, either accounting, uh, church membership and guidance or teaching materials, uh, temple and kitchen, uh, publishing, media, uh, or uh, construction or landscaping. And you were in which department? Uh, for seven years, uh, I was trained in um, the landscaping, construction, and mechanic department. And then for roughly four or five years, I had, I think four years, I was trained in uh, writing, editing, publishing, proofreading, and uh, website design. And was this the purpose for out there serving others doing this work? Or what was the purpose of, like if you're doing landscape construction, what are you building or what are you working on? The monastery is uh, over 400 acres. So uh, a, a team of five monks was designated to keep things going, keep the buildings. I mean, so we're talking about Kauai. So uh, the air is basically mold, uh, wood rots yeah. uh, in a year. Uh, so there's constant, and there's 20 of us in a compound. So uh, there, it, we had a work order system uh, where a monk could uh, send in a work order and say, you know, building five doesn't have uh, the, the plumbing isn't working. Something's wrong. One of us reads the work order, a team, you know, a team leader it assigns you to it. And then uh, there you go. You have a plumbing job. Other times it's like, um, you know, we were just given a hundred thousand dollars to establish a solar powered system for the whole place. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, it was our team leader's job to, figure out how to engineer that, order the panels, and then we would install them. Uh, so we had a giant solar field of 150 panels. Oh, wow. Uh, gardening, uh, organic farming, uh, tractor operation. We, we grew all of our own food except for rice and dal. So every day we had to harvest first thing and bring in uh, food for the kitchen. And uh, the cook would then turn that into lunch and dinner. And so that was for us, right? The, the, yeah. There are several departments that are just for the monks, right? And sustainability. Uh, in, the, in the media department, that was our global outreach, you know, a center for education, uh, distribution of education. And you were basically, if you were in that department, you were trained how to be a teacher, mentor, counselor to people. And uh, mm -hmm. we were all priests. And so accounting, you know, internal, uh, uh, temple, internal and external, uh, kitchen, internal. So it depends on what department, but uh, definitely in the media department, it's specifically global outreach. So as you're going through your day, you're doing these things, what was the evening like and kind of winding down into um, ending your day? What was that like? At, we uh, work was cut off at 6 p.m. And so work is from 8 to um, 12.30. 12.30 to 1 is cleaning. 1 to 1.30 is lunch. 1.30 to 3 is either, um, you know, do laundry or take a break uh, or gym training. Uh, some of us trained in the monastery gym three times a day. Uh, and so then three to six was work again and 6 p.m. to seven was evening training uh, or break before 
seven to nine, uh, you know, chill time, have a beer, have a glass of wine, hang out with your brother monks. Really? So there's a couple things there that I did not expect, which was beer, wine, and a gym. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think the biggest misconceptions are that people have about monks? And I nope. know there's different orders of monks, but maybe just in general. People think that monks have nothing to do with alcohol, cheese, or bread. And the world, as <laughs> historically, can thank monks for bread, cheese, beer, wine, and chocolate. And lots of great beer, by the way. <laughs> really delicious beer, man. So, yeah, uh, you know, it, it's always fascinating to hear people to see their reaction when you say, you know, I, I was the head brewer of the monastery, so I made 500 gallons of beer every year. Um, oh, wow. I started the first all grain brewery there. Uh, and, uh, you know, I had to manage uh, the uh, purchase and distribution and, and serving of wine, sodas, carbonated water, you know, we had all these things um, as an internal, uh, you know, we didn't sell anything basically yeah it was just uh, for the benefit of the monks and, and their lifestyle which was uh you know primarily one of balance we we didn't meditate all day because that's a waste of time yeah we had, we had work to do which helps meditation and then you know to avoid burnout we we took off work every day at six o'clock wow that's pretty interesting. I don't think that I thought anything about this that way. <laughs> I think it's good that, that we're talking about this because I think there's so many aspects to human life that we have an idea of what it may be because of what the public or the media tells us it is. And then when you go behind the curtains, you're like, wait a minute, cheese, bread, beer, <laughs> like the gym. Like, what's the mon monastery gym like? What's that environment like? Well, it was, uh, before I came, it was a, um, a tent uh, oh. and then a trailer uh, a few years into my monastic life. And then I helped establish the first uh, building and the construction of an actual facility. And uh, it was beautiful. Um, I helped the concrete floors with the with the uh, pump truck and uh, professionals and then we got equipment and it was an uh, open air so the Hawaiian oh, wow. trade winds blew through and um, you could see the sunrise on one part of the gym and on the back side you could see the sunset <laughs> that's amazing, man. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah it was stunning and fitness was part of our vows you know for 30 minutes a day we were we were uh, required to train in some capacity mm -hmm. either with yoga walking or uh, you know weight training so uh, some of us took that to the extremes and mm -hmm. uh, we're, we're in the gym uh, you know I studied exercise science throughout the 12-year yeah. period along with baking and uh, fermentation science and uh, <laughs> philosophy, theology etc. Is that common in um and other monasteries and things that physical activity is very important or is it, was that more part of what you did? It definitely depends on the tradition and the, the uh -huh. world location. So in Asia, you know, in, in um, you know, China, Japan, in, in, in 
Buddhist uh, monasteries, you're definitely going to have uh, less of a focus on work and more of a focus on physical training. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in India, monasteries are going to have a, a focus on neither, but more social outreach, building hospitals, schools, things like that. Um, and meditation, maybe, if you're in a good monastery. But this one was a, a blend of, of everything. It was, it was work, meditation, and physical training. I see. So as, you're, as the years you know, begin to pass by, uh, what were your thoughts? Were you thinking, man, this is, this is it for me? But obviously it wasn't. What started to change that pulled you in a different direction eventually to getting out of there? Okay, so yeah, as the years went by, everything was, was you know, life altering. I had essentially come in as a 19 as a year old, you know, know it all. And I, and I was molded and shaped and broken down and then molded into this uh, man, right? I became a man inside of a monastery, basically. Hmm. And uh, I became a mature adult who could actually give back to society. And, you know, I had, I believe I had uh, some of the best teachers in the world. So, uh, you know, as a, as a, a mentor to other people and to younger monks and, and a team leader and someone kind of rising in the ranks, I was definitely set and, and I was sure that I was going to eventually take lifetime vows, you know, grow a beard and uh, just live my life as a quiet philosopher. Is that part of it? You have to grow a beard in a lifetime? Deal? Yeah. I mean, really? What if you yeah, can't what? grow a beard? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Some people can't grow beards, man. <laughs> like, uh, you know, you, you would still try. <laughs> <laughs> You get like the scratchy beard. It's like, yeah, it may not look that good, but you know, you try, right? I've seen it. I've seen it. You know, some okay. sometimes it'll only kind of predominantly grow from the right. middle down uh, and the sides are bare and it just kind of scratches yeah. things out. And Is that happens? guy like less worthy or something? <laughs> <laughs> oh, John, he's got a terrible beard. He's garbage. <laughs> He knows nothing. Of this Sorry, thing. that was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, uh, that's hilarious. Uh, <laughs> beard, okay, so the beard signifies that you've renounced. Okay, that, that you've literally, renunciation means to literally throw down. So mm-hmm. you're kind of, um, you're kind of sloughing. I think that's the word. If, if you could slough off the world and mm-hmm. the attachment and desire, family, wealth, you know, uh, the need for position uh, and, and, and rank, uh, they go away and you're supposed to, uh, you know, embody. This is kind of why I ended up leaving. You, you essentially embody someone who has already died. Mm. And your, your renunciation ceremony is, is around fire and you burn all your previous monastic things which isn't much, you know, older robes and and needs and things like that. You get new earrings and um, you have a a funeral ceremony for your previous self. And I I hit a period uh, about the 10 year mark where I had gotten into a rank uh, called Yogi, 
where I was headed towards that path. And, and it, I, my robes changed from white to yellow. Mm-hmm. And it was a sign that this young man is preparing um, to, uh, you know, to die. His, his, his old self, what you see now, is going to go into uh, a funeral ceremony and he's going to come out a new person and forever um, live the Dharma, so to speak. Yeah. And uh, I went through a two year training period where I was, uh, it's called tapas, which is uh, Sanskrit for inner fire. Um, and it's a two year period that a yogi takes in that rank to uh, silence himself from the world. So you don't know what's going on outside the monastery. This was right when Trump got elected. Mm-hmm. Um, the night before, actually, I think I started my discipline. Uh, you don't talk to family or any or, or anyone for two years, uh, just the monks, and you you know you cannot um, take off work at the end of the day. You don't you don't partake in in, in the uh, the community, the solidarity in the evening, and you can't drink and anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so for for the two years, you are uh, specifically uh, tuned in, in a protocol to to get you meditating, working, and, and studying 24-7. And then yeah. even in sleep, we were trained to um, manipulate dreams to actually uh, be a, a form of teaching and learning things. So uh, you were never off, and the job was 24-7. Wow. So after that period, uh, which is designed to either pull you out of the monastery to guide you on another path or to make you a better monk, I actually realized that I was uh, a, a better person out, out in the world and, and not a better monk. I was actually becoming uh, a worse monk and I, um, mm. I just didn't care for the work anymore and wanted to expose myself to other challenges. Um, or you could say I was in a, a group identity with, with known, uh, territory and I sought for uh, unexplored uh, a new unexplored chaotic environment to which I could then transform again into order so you make this decision that you're going to leave what was the last day like there it was hard as hell Um, so once I made the decision I had two days to process out and Mm -hmm. Uh, give away uh, basically assign my duties to other people in the department and uh, you know give my computer back we had we had computers and phones so that we could communicate and within the monastery and with the uh, people that we hired teams of people that worked for us uh, and then the international congregation of members Um, so I owned nothing Uh, I turned in all my things and uh, I, ha- I basically met with, with several of the monks uh, a few times and talked. And, you know, I cried with some of the brothers and other monks didn't want to look at me. And that's fine because it was like, basically to some, I was throwing in the towel, basically. I was right. you know, giving up. And, well, that's fine, though. It's a, that's what they're trained to do. And, and they're good at it. And so I respect that. Uh, 
but I did follow protocol. You know, some monks actually will leave in the middle of the night so they don't have oh. to go through that, that yeah. walk of shame almost. Um, but uh, I, before I took lifetime vows, I, I made the decision. And so I cut it off and uh, tried to leave as respectfully and with honor, as much right. honor as possible. Um, and then they give you 2000 bucks and uh, a plane ticket to wherever you want to go. And then uh, ask that you just remember the teachings and carry on your work. So where did you head immediately after that? Where did you go? I went to Texas to see my Texas. mother and my two sisters. He just rolled out to Texas. <laughs> it was, I was in a monastery. I went to Texas. <laughs> so, well, right. Where do you go? You know, right. So where do you go? It, it was kind of, I had a choice. I, I could go to um, several places where I had connections in, but I had to also reconnect with family and, and yeah. you know, almost like the sun returning um, to the to parents that that you know lost him years ago and so I had right. to make that I had to make that right again um, because that was very hard for them too I had only talked to them once a year if that oh wow. throughout the whole period so yeah because the process of, of taking lifetime vows is that you cut off connection with family eventually right. and and they're not considered your family anymore it's you're you're kind of a child to the world and, and, and a brother and a, and a uh, you know, you're connected to the entire planet in that sense and to all beings. So that's the path that I was headed towards. However, um, uh, you know, I had to, even though it might've been easier for me, I had to go back and, and kind of mend that relationship and still working on that today. Uh, Had they seen you in that entire 12 year period? Eight years prior, uh, family had, had visited. Eight years prior. So you looked very different probably to them, like maturity wise. <laughs> like you, you're a very mature, diff different person, like looking yeah. your whole spirit, your aura, and the whole thing. Oh, of course, yes. I, I'm absolutely another person. Um, but um, I did have a shaved head and a shaved face when, I, when they yeah. left. So physically, I, I look the same, but... But, but you were uh, a different person at I, that time. I, I was and, and am indeed a different person, yeah. So I did that. I, I spent 16 days in Texas, and then a friend of mine, who I actually gave my company to uh, 12 years prior, uh, invited me to come and live with, with him in Colorado. And, uh, you know, he asked me... I reached out to him uh, before leaving... I reached out to several people and, and just kind of let people know that I was uh, uh, becoming a civilian again. And some people wanted to work with me and collaborate with me and everything. And, and I'm actually going to uh, San Jose in a few months to, to work with one of my, my mentors there. Uh, but my friend who I grew up with and I gave my business to, I reached out to him and said, hey, you know, what are you doing? What's going on? This is what's going on with me. And we both established that we were uh, mountain bikers. And uh, he said, well, why don't you come to Colorado and we'll go mountain bike together and be neighbors. And I said, okay. And after 16 days in Texas, I went to Colorado. He helped me get an apartment down the street from his house. And uh, he, he kind of helped me get established. My brother-in-law helped me get a bank account and a cell phone. And 
I, it, day one, just like a one-year-old walking the streets, yeah. starting over again. And uh, now it's it's a year and some months later, like a year and three or three months later, four months. And um, yeah, just teaching teaching people what I learned and, and writing about it and uh, personal training when I can. Yeah. What was the biggest adjustment for you in kind of being thrown back into, you know, everyday life outside of the monastery? Right. The biggest adjustment was being alone, like leaving, leaving my apartment alone, going to the store by myself. The monks never did that. We always traveled in, in pairs. Together. Okay, yeah. Yeah. And so to, you know, drive a car by myself and, and start listening to music again. And that was brand new and that was unnerving at first. And I, I would have to, you know, I would text my friend and say, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm going to the store or I'm leaving my apartment. And he would say, good luck. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I wish you the best. Good luck grocery shopping, man. All right. You know, k- kill it out there. All right. <laughs> yeah, it was, that was, that was the biggest change. Oh my. So was it unnerving and that you just were used to having the companionship with somebody and you just, or what was the unnerving aspect of it? Well, I guess let's imagine for 12 years, you, you never leave your house by yourself. Yeah. The moment you do, it's a new experience. You, you, right. No one else is there. It's like driving for the first time. Yeah. You're, you're free. You're and, free, yeah. And it's an amazing feeling. This was amazing, but at the same time, I, it was still, you know, it was still strange and new. And I, I'm still getting used to it. And, but I'm more in the um, enjoyment phase where to be free and to, you know, to wear different shirts and, and, <laughs> and to, you know, be able to open Spotify and listen to whatever kind of music you want. That, yeah. That, that's a miracle. Wow. You know that a lot of people don't think that's a miracle, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. Honestly, I find it completely amazing. That level of that, that's a miracle. That's mind blowing to me. I love it. I love it. Yeah, I think there's I, something special about that. Gratitude. It, it, it's, we, we have to cultivate gratitude for what we have because one of the things that helped me cultivate gratitude at the monastery was reading about uh, prisoners of war mm. uh, and the struggles that they, they went through and, and go through and um, reading about, so I did, I read hundreds of books in the monastery and, and I studied on, on history and uh, military strategy and, and uh, philosophy, of course, and theology and, and studying the world religions. I did all of that. And, you start to read about people who have lived a life that, uh, you know, is devastating at times. And, and the worst tragedies have, that can possibly occur have happened to people. And to, to, to identify with that temporarily and to, and to put yourself in their shoes, it, is, uh, it, it changes the way you see the world and, and your life. And, and that's why I recommend it to clients who are, uh, you know, suffering a bit from their own depressions and things like that, that they should start reading about people who uh, 
for example, uh, Americans and, and, and British soldiers in, after World War II on, on Japanese slave ships coming back from, to, their, to their designated countries right. were starved and, and disease-ridden and, and uh, you know, were seeing other soldiers go insane in front of them. Uh, or instead of starving, they would eat each other and drink each other's blood. So, mm. you know, wow. the, atro- the atrocities that people have survived show, you know, because you have to ask yourself, well, what does that mean? Well, what the hell does that mean anyway, that that happened? And it means that you can endure too. And someone else endured. Someone else actually went through suffering and got out of it alive and actually continued their life. So it means that you can also endure and endure suffering. And in fact, enduring suffering is, is pretty much what we're all designed to do and that we don't have any other choice. Mm. powerful very powerful now you know when we when I was thinking oh man I'm, I'm so looking forward to chatting with you Raj and I was thinking about meditation specifically you must have a definite opinion about or thoughts related to meditation as it relates to the world today and as you know meditation has become well is starting to become much more mainstream and pop culture. What are your thoughts on that? I think it's good, even if it's bad. Oh, okay. (laughs) Gotta take me there now. Come on. (laughs) What I mean to say is I've been exposed a little bit to the way other people meditate and and, and the way that, that Western yoga has taken meditation and turned it into, um, love and, 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 bliss and harmony and things like that. And I think that's great. However, it's, it's only part of the picture and it's, it's, it's kind of putting the cart before the horse. It's not necessarily false advertising, but, mm-hmm. but real meditation is, is not about love. But real meditation in the beginning is, is pretty damn hard and terrifying because what you're asking or what you're embarking on really is, is a journey into your mind and past. And then once all those things are cleared up, then we start to experience where compassion and, and love come from. But the steps getting there are like, you know, willingly taking out a sword and fighting the demons of your past. And that's not necessarily exposed up front that's in the fine print Hmm. so are you i feel like there's somewhat of a commercialization of it going on and 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 much like the internet which is a power that we've been given that nobody really knows how to use so much meditation feels like that in some way it's kind of exploding i just saw a commercial with lebron james uh advertising calm i'm like what the hell is going on here 
like, yeah, you, know, yeah, like, I I feel like you know what I mean? Like, I feel like we're getting something, but we really don't know what we're doing. You know, like we don't really understand the full depth of the immersion of it. So I'm fascinated as someone who is, you know, you were meditating constantly. I mean, you know, you said you had time off, but what's the difference between the meditation that you're doing and what you're seeing currently out there right now? Okay. Meditation has different goals. Uh, along the, the one string of meditation from start to finish, mm -hmm. there are all these different goals in between. And, and when you talk about the, the presentation as, as of meditation as we see it now and, and the goals are like in the beginning of the string and, and it's mindfulness, observation, um, you know, just having a little bit of peace, lower, lowering blood pressure, getting the mm -hmm. mind to kind of quiet a little bit, that's over here in the beginning. And that's why I say it's good because it's causing people to stop and at least try something new to, to help them with their, um, mm -hmm. you know, their, their thought laid in mind. And that's, that's the beginning, you know, to, to achieve mindfulness, and to be able to focus better, improve your memory and everything. That's the beginning stages of meditation. After that, you actually get into past trauma resolution. So once you get kind of good at meditation, you'll actually start to dive deeper into your subconscious and, and, and you'll remember things about your past and those will come up. And unless you lived in a bubble your whole life, you're going to start experiencing things that could be painful. You might start, uh, sweating you might start getting way too hot and, and your breathing may become erratic there are a lot of things after the beginning stages that start to happen that are good and that are designed to take you even deeper into yourself and your own being and there's kind of uh i guess the the end goal that monks go for is enlightenment or what's known mm -hmm. as self-realization and before you get, so it all depends on your goal. If you want to just lower your blood pressure and learn how to breathe, then just learning some basic, basic, basic breathing techniques and, and sitting for five minutes a day is perfect. Yeah. And the same is true for someone who wants the last goal of, of enlightenment or self-realization and to, to completely unify and, and link back up with your spirit. You have to start there in the beginning too, but then you keep going and meditating longer and you start to, take on new philosophies that you didn't have before. How do you have a conversation with a person um, in a sense that you're saying, you know, we're designed to endure and that struggle, which I, I share a very similar philosophy to that, honestly. I mean, that really resonated with me. How do you have that conversation in conjunction with what is also being seen as kind of the movement of happiness? Let's be happy everybody be happy. Let's have joy all the time. How do you have that conversation understanding both of those elements of life? When you tell somebody you're designed to endure, you know? Yeah, right. They usually tell you to go to hell. Right, um, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> People want joy. They want happiness. People want like, I want to be happy. And maybe yeah. they don't think about they're not facing the struggle though aspect of it in many ways. I mean, they just push it away and they say, you know, I, I don't want my life to be hard. Yeah. Good vibes I only. Have that conversation with people. 
Yeah, uh, it, it's a difficult one to start, and, and I have them a lot, especially with clients who are, are young enough to not have had to suffer yet. And, and the beginning of their depression is the beginning of their life. And you, it takes a long time if, you, if someone is paying you uh, to slowly get them to see suffering as a way to achieve contentment. And that, you know, it's a, it's a philosophical breakdown. You have to kind of say, well, here's your philosophy, here's mine. And you have to ask yourself, what's the alternative? And, and mm. you know, because you know one path. You know that what makes you happy one day is going to make you sad the next day. There's a duality to everything. And we've experienced that. We've experienced relationships where they're confusing and they're hurtful and they can break you. And we, once we know that reality, then other people are usually open open to something else and they are open to an alternative but you can't give them everything at once and you certainly don't want to start to uh, give someone anything unless they ask so that's when someone asks about it they're they're then receptive to new knowledge but, but i don't recommend anyone begin that conversation if someone hasn't started poking around in that in that area yeah <clears throat> how do you as um, a former monk, how do you view religion and spirituality? Because that's, I think these are all relevant conversations because <clears throat> people are having quite a bit of conversations about spirituality and religion these days, whether positive or negative. What's your viewpoint of, based off of your studies of all those things as a monk? Well, that's kind of a big question. I, I know. <laughs> I love big questions. Me too, man. Religion is changing because consciousness is changing. Mm. So before, you know, in Christianity and Catholicism, it wasn't okay to be homosexual, for example. Right. Now, uh, we actually did an article in the monastery. We had an international magazine called Hinduism Today. I did. Uh, I helped out on an article that talked about uh, Christian Christian churches uh, closing at the rate of about one hundred thousand per year. Right. Um, what does that mean? That means that people are being born into a world where it's it's not okay to believe certain things, and so someone is saying, "Hey." Uh, my friend Sarah is gay. That means she's going to go to hell. Then, you know, I'm not really down with what you're saying. Right. So what's going on is the ecclesiastical bodies of, of Christianity and Catholicism. The Pope is a good example. They're changing the way they, um, they pontificate on, on eternal truths. I'm okay with that. You know, and I'm okay with, with different religions and, as long as it obviously right doesn't doesn't um, cause harm to anyone right. else in the name of of, uh, of being saved or, or religious warfare things like that uh, to me that's that's um, not a helpful religion and and I think over time those things will naturally die out as the the entire world 
uh, encompasses uh, similar beliefs and practices. For example, uh, karma and reincarnation. Yeah. Both Hindu concepts and, and Eastern philosophical uh, tenets are uh, becoming uh, household words. You know, karma is now, you know, I think the word is ubiquitous. I mean, or it's just known by everybody. And, and you know, yoga, especially, you know, it's funny because to see a Christian practicing yoga, it's like they are, they are essentially not a very good Christian because they're, they're practicing the, something from another religion. Uh, however, there's another perspective where, you know, if, if, if it's helping them understand their religion better, then that's great. But I think eventually, you know, for example, if a diehard Catholic was to practice yoga for long enough, he would start to uh, leave his, his own religion and question hmm. you know, the meaning of it. So um, the, the answer to are all religions are all paths ending up at the same place uh no and are they all kind of meaning the same thing and worshiping the same god absolutely not um if if i were to tell you know a jew that they could attain the same states as their god uh, they would think i was crazy um so hinduism buddhism and zen things like that uh, eastern uh, religions are indeed uh, on a very similar, if not same, path to enlightenment. Abrahamic religions, uh, Islam, Christianity, Catholicism, uh, Judaism, are not. Hmm. What is <clears throat> so? When you were learning about all these things and you know being a monk, what were the similarities between all of the religions that you could take away from that, if there were any in your mind? Yeah, I think so. There's one. Every individual is is doing that which makes them happy. Hmm. And doing that which they think is right. So everyone has a different moral compared to societal ethics. Okay? Society has a, a governing body of rules that they've internalized and spread to their people. But individuals have morals, which are individualized, personal, um, and internalized beliefs that they take in, in their own um, path. And so sometimes they conflict. But the one thing that remains the same with with all of life and, and the religions inside of life is that everyone is doing what they think is right and what adheres to their morals and their moral code. I think that it, because of that, you know, everyone practices their own religion in some way. If, mm. if the definition of religion is just doing that which is ritualistic and routine and which causes upliftment. So part of my religion is waking up every morning and making a shot of espresso. It, it, it's something sacred to me. So right. everyone is practicing something. Everyone believes that what they're doing is right. And if they don't, then they start to, to change and adapt new ways that eventually make them feel like what they're doing is right. So we're all 
it's kind of an Aristotelian uh, effect. Mm -hmm. Everyone is going towards um, nobility and, and courageousness, but we're all on these different timelines and where one person is at, someone else is going to be a little behind or ahead. And so you just have to have compassion, accept that everyone is where they are and continue to uh, work on yourself and thus help every other person around you. If everyone did that, then the world is going to be a great place. Do you think, is there any crossover you feel in like, you know, things like compassion and love and kindness and caring? You think those are tenets of most religions or did, did you not see that when you're studying all these things? Well, the essence, yes, is, is a unifying factor. However, in reality, what one person deems as love or what's right and causes love is actually different from someone else. Mm. So for someone following a fanatical Islam, what they deem as love for their God and what is right, right. is going to be very different from what a Hindu believes. That is, that is fascinating. That, <clears throat> that actually makes a lot of sense because you would think about it. I mean, in an in a extremely fundamentalist or fanatical nature, that love could be a very violent love, in a sense, versus a more kinder, compassionate, um, more benevolent love. For yeah, that. that's why, that's why um, truth is just whatever works for the individual. It's whatever is true for them. For Charles Manson, his truth was quite different than my truth. So right. he was doing what he thought was right in his own mind. And everyone is doing the same thing. Now, what do you think, like, you know, you had mentioned karma. I always get a sense that people throw that word around very loosely, like that they actually don't understand the technical meaning of it. I've that. come across that, yeah. Do you, like, what do you think of that? Because I, I mean, not knowing it, obviously, like you, I almost feel like, I think it's used too lightly with things like, oh, that's, you know, you did that that's karma coming back to get you. And I'm like, I don't know that that's really what it means, honestly, guys. <laughs> like, okay, so with karma, yeah, I get that a lot. Um, it's, it's basically considered uh, in society as a negative thing, right? Yeah. You don't want karma. Uh, your karma's coming back to you, as you said. But what it actually is, is just action and reaction. So in a sense, everything, that we do in life is karma. Hmm. Life, whenever we decide to act and thus cause a rebounding reaction, we are inside karma. I've never so, heard it that way. That's, that's, that's very interesting. Yeah. Um, I want to dive deeper on this. I, don't, I mean, I get it kind of, but I kind of don't at the same time. Well, us talking now, it's just, it's the law of karma. It's the, okay. it's the law of action and reaction. So I'm moving forward in speech. You are listening and, and that's creating a reaction for you to speak. Um, someone gets hit over the head. There's a karma there causing a reaction of anger right. and retaliation and then a furthering action, a, a reaction. 
And then that reaction causes another action. And thus the cycle of life is essentially just made up of karma. The idea with mm. a, an Eastern philosophical uh, follower of, of anything going on in the East, and uh, because they all believe in karma, is that we need to minimize karma. Now, it's good to do good things, right? Because you would think the karma would be to do good. And that's true. We all want to do good things. But in a, in a, in a specifically monk perspective, we, cease, we, we choose to cease karmas, meaning hmm. to neither do good or bad and to, to not create any action and, and eventually attain moksha, which is liberation from rebirth. So that that's a very high ideal. That's that's a that's a whole other that's a whole other level of of Eastern thought, right? While we're in the trenches in the world, that is uh, something that might cause conflict because yeah. while in the world we do have to work in and around karma. So you know, at the very least, it, it, it's beneficial to just do that which is good, you know, hopefully your morals are according to, to most, go according to most morals. And um, you just try to uplift people as much as you can. And just yeah. by lift, uplifting yourself, you kind of tend to uplift other people. Uh, in, the, in the monastic uh, definition, you become a monk to end karma. Hmm. So is that, so is that really kind of like what I get from that is kind of like, is that kind of the removal from kind of society aspect is to, Hey, I'm not going to create good or bad karma. I'm just going to basically remove myself from general society and focus on enlightenment and not create this action and reactionary force with others. That's which, exactly right. like what you're saying is that it's impossible to do that in, in general living because you're always interacting with people and so you're creating karma no matter what because you're just you're around other people all the time right there are okay i would also say that that that's true but i would say you know to give hope to people there's uh there's there's different uh levels of karma so obviously reincarnation is spurred on by desire it, it the cycle of, in, in Eastern philosophical thought, the, the cycle of life uh, or samsara is just, uh, it, keeps, it keeps going because of desire and karma is a part of desire. Um, so to, to be on the best level of karma possible would be to just uplift people to do good and, and try not to do things that hurt other people, right? Or hurt oneself. Yeah. Um, but there's also a truth that becoming successful in meditation can also burn karma. Mm -hmm. So karma is like energy, movement, right? Electricity, constant. The only time that there is no karma in, in Eastern thought is what's called samadhi, which is the deepest state or one of the deepest states of meditation inside yourself in the deepest state of meditation, there's no energy, right? Like a lot of yogic concepts and, and Western yogis um, 
talk about energy and balancing chakras and things like that, um, which for the most part, I think is, is bullshit, but <laughs> I had a feeling you were going to say that, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, cause those things happen naturally. We don't, we don't intentionally, you don't in. summon it and so, you know, no, it's just no, there. No. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You just kind of like, you know, don't be a pill and your heart chakra will be fine. Um, <laughs> so all of that stuff is, is we talk about energy and, and, and things like that and manipulating it. But at the core of, of real meditation, there is no energy. It's, it's the source of energy. It's, it's before energy even exists. So in that realm, there's no karma. There's no movement. There's no action. There's no reaction. Yeah. There's nothing. So in that way, you're actually an advanced yogi is able to burn up karmas from the past. And the key to only doing good and to only uplifting people and not have negative karmas from years and years and years before is to be current. And it's like, okay, if you can go through one day without blaming for someone for something, without getting angry or emotional or causing some sort of reaction that's going to come back to you hours or weeks or months later, if you can go through one day like that and have a good meditation, then you're current. You're, you're like, the score is 1-1, one, one, right? Mm. And, and the key is to not get too far away from that karmic scale where you know, you're creating reactions that are possibly going to come back to haunt you years later. And we want to, we want to just stay, you know, we create a little karma. The idea is to kind of try to resolve it as much as possible. That, and that comes into, see, I love all of these concepts because they, while they are lofty and, you know, seemingly far away, it's actually the reason why two people can live harmoniously in the same household. And it helps parents raise their children and it helps people give back to society. And while it does seem uh, part of the macrocosm and the whole, it breaks down into every single detail of our life. Oh man, you're a fascinating dude. You know that man, there's a whole bunch going on. I just learned like so many things that I had really not ever considered. It's amazing. We, I do want to ask you about, because I think sometimes I talk to people and like they tell me things and then I'm like, oh, this is a great conversation about something I just heard. And or that I have been having for other discussions about. So one is basically science and religion that been having discussions. How do you, I don't know, maybe not grapple is not the right word. How do you look at your viewpoint of science in conjunction with religion? Great question. Uh, I think they're both good. <laughs> I think. Uh, yeah, me too. Yeah. I think they're both necessary because Logic and reason is a part of a healthy mind. If logic and reason or science is the only part of your mind, you will be far behind most concepts and will never probably be happy. <laughs> <laughs> There might be a lot of unhappy people out there. I'm just letting you know. <laughs> so the challenge with science is that it's slow. It, it, yeah. You have to create results in, in a laboratory setting that can, you know, data must be produced and then, and then 
replicated and, and uh, it has to be objective and not subjective. But we live in a subjective reality. So uh, yeah. everyone's truth is just what they see out of their own mind. It's great that we have scientific truth. But if you only depend on it and don't believe in the out there, the, the, the mystical, the, mm -hmm. um, you know, if you don't believe that good is going to give you good, well, what, why the hell would you do good? You know, I mean, scientific laws are going to be behind Eastern mystic laws all the mm -hmm. time. And, and what we knew thousands of years ago, science is trying to catch up and prove those results wonderful but you know i've i've already believed in karma before you proved it in the lab so that's great great for you <laughs> that's always my thing that's always my thing i honestly i i raj i grapple with this man i love science man i love science i love learning yeah, it's, about it's it. i love documentaries and these amazing things but also i also love spirituality and religion and yeah. But I, some, I sometimes think that the world tries to tell us that you may not believe in both things. You must oh, believe yeah. in what you can prove to be true. And I always say, you know, there's just mystery out there. What if, what if you serve your whole life trying to find out a fact and you never know? And yeah. it's just mystery. That's oh, so that, that's like the definition of a scientist lie. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, but it's okay. But what if, but if that's your only meaning in life and there's nothing else beyond that, I struggle with that. And, and in the same sense, I struggle with, on the other side, the, uh, a very religious aspect of like, you know, listen, it's just, don't look at science at all. You oh. know, just look at, you know, the things that are the, the, in the ether all the time, you know? And I think there's a, there's a healthy mix of the two, but I think that sometimes I, I get, I think we're in a weird time with science for me is that is always just let's prove that we can be happy. Let's prove that karma exists. Let's, let's prove everything that seems out there. Let's see if it's true or not. And sometimes I think it's, can I just believe it? Can I just believe it? Do I have yeah. to know everything? I don't want to know everything all the time. That's, that's a very wise thing to say and think because um, you know, I think the, the wisest people of history, both in science and in mysticism and, and in philosophy have said that we know not that that's kind of the stoic principle. That's what Socrates believed. And, uh, he's considered the father of Western philosophy. Right. So, so there's a reason he has such a high regard and, and he, he caused so much, um, so many dramatic changes and, and was later killed you know, because he essentially proved to people through his own, uh, you know, Socratic dialogue that um, they don't really know what they're talking about, no matter what uh, science has said. And, and, you know, I believe in electricity, even though we may not be able to scientifically define it or, or but there are laws that, that, that can be true and, and we can be on both sides and we can be right in the middle in a balance. And that goes back to that truth thing. Like whatever's true in the moment, you know, is, is paramount. So to say that, um, you know, if you just, cause you can't prove something scientifically, it's not real. Um, I mean, a lot of people got cancer from cigarettes before they knew it caused cancer. Right. So, 
it's interesting to me. I think we're in a we're in a we're kind of in this struggle, which I think is is a good struggle in many ways to understand what we think about science, what we think about religion, and I often often think that many people side on things because they've been hurt by something. Or they say, oh, I hate this because I hate religion because you, my father died and there must not be a God if that happened. How did you let that happen? Or, you know, it just, you know, people, they bring their hurt to the table, which colors their truth about, about mm -hmm. it on that. Absolutely. And that could be said on the other side of other things as well. It's not just, I don't profess to say, oh, I'm only one-sided. I just, I just think there's a place for both things. But I also don't think that I, I need to know if it's true all the time. Absolutely. And there's proof. I don't need proof all the time to believe right. something. And I think that can be dangerous to some people. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. You just, you just have to, the scientific method has to prove this is right. And I'm like, I, I don't need that though all the time. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and that's where they're at. I mean, that's the beauty of, 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 of having this belief and, and faith that, that souls are all, all have the same essence, but are on a different timeline. And yeah. while someone is, is stuck on science, um, someone else is stuck on spirituality uh that's just where they are in their yeah. life cycle and um in my belief that that soul just goes through another life and then they go back and forth and they make mistakes and like anything in life we, we learn through our own mistakes and um i mean one of the greatest accomplishments in a, in a scientist's life is a good theory it's not even necessarily proving it right but to have a to have a, a, a like a mind blowing theory is considered uh, an exquisite accomplishment. And to be on that level where you have to prove something objectively for everyone, uh, I, I wouldn't have accomplished half of the things I have if, if that were true and necessary. And, and it's really in the end, um, you know, subconsciously or consciously, uh, I don't think anyone can truthfully say they're fully scientific or else, uh, you know, I, I don't think they would do a lot of the things they do. Right. So going to work and, and you know, believing in money, that's, that's right. not nothing to do with science. That's <laughs> made, completely made up. <laughs> it's completely made up. It's an intersubjective reality or story that we all believe in, like credit. I mean, what? So, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> digital numbers. Um, Just numbers, man. So, I mean, we all in our hearts kind of know what to do, but on the outside, we then color it with, with different words. Yeah. So where do you, where's life headed for you? I mean, you're, you've gone through this incredible adventure and this, first portion of your life and you're you're out there you're, you're you're going to the grocery store on your own now man you know you're, you're living life you're, come on you know come you're going to the movies by yourself it's a good a fun, it's a fun activity okay <laughs> like, well, actually i don't go to the movies by myself no I have, I, have a, I have a wonderful woman in my life and that's great uh, so my future uh is now our future and wonderful um Life for me is going to hopefully continue to work with people. Um, mm -hmm. I just finished my fourth book, so I hope people can get to it, read it yeah. once it's published. Um, 
and uh, yeah, I've already, um, you know, helped one person in my life, and and uh, that was kind of my goals. I guess I should raise my goals. <laughs> <laughs> You're done. <laughs> You know, I, I just, I'm continuing my own journey to in meditation and, and um, uh, I have a lot of future collaborations with uh, monks that, that left the monastery before I did and uh, are my good brothers. And, and so uh, I'm from Denver, I'll probably be in uh, San Jose in another opportunity and then, um, you know, just doing more things to kind of help people realize that if they take a little bit of responsibility for their life and take the blame uh, more times than not, then they'll be happier. Wow. I think that's a great way to end it. Well said, man. Raj, this was awesome, dude. I mean, I I always learn when I do these, but uh, I felt like I downloaded, I was like in the matrix and I downloaded (laughs) Kung Fu immediately and uh the karma especially the karma part was incredibly mind-blowing i i have literally never heard it from that point of view and and so many other things and how you detail religion and science and all those i mean if your book is anything like this a lot of people are going to be greatly informed and um to make a decision on how they view things um so this is a special one really good stuff man really thank you Uh, It was a pleasure. Uh, I appreciate you spending your valuable time with me. Yes, of course. Of course. Well, listen, man, we will be in touch. And uh, you're in Denver, right? You said? For now. For now. For now. And uh, but I have some amazing people I know in Denver that I think would greatly benefit uh, from meeting you. Oh, wonderful. So just I would love to connect you with just some just wonderful people I know there. And I just think it's good for us to commune together, to know each other and uh, be positive with each other. And I think you're somebody I would love to uh, help build that with other people for sure. Superb. Thank you, man. We'll be in touch. All right. All right. Thanks.